Psalm 26, a psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with the idolatrous mortals, nor will I go with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. And our sermon text today is Exodus eight sixteen through 19, just a few verses. It's entitled, The uh, Plague of Lice. Uh, Starting in verse 16, So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians worked so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. The day before typing this particular sermon, a friend on Facebook, a guy named Taylor, posted to me something that I had missed during one of my earlier sermons in Exodus. It was from Exodus chapter 3. And I'm not going to go back that way again ever in my life, but I hate to not share everything about a passage that I can And so I'm including his words in today's sermon because they fit with this sermon. At the time that Moses stood before the burning bush, I gave several reasons for why the Lord asked Moses to take off his sandals. I don't know if you remember that, but I gave those reasons. And then I noted that the only other time that this was seen in the entire Bible is in Joshua chapter 5. I gave the reasons for this and how the two accounts contrast, and yet they confirm a message at the same time. When Taylor watched that sermon, he thought about it, and the Lord led him to another picture, a prophetic picture, which I had completely missed. He noted that the first and the second advents of Jesus Christ are actually pictured in those two accounts. On his first advent, he came as the giver of instruction. He's the one that gave us his law to redeem and separate his people from the world. The next time he comes, it will be as the Lord of hosts to take his people into the promised land. And this is absolutely correct. Moses was the human giver of instruction and the redeemer of his people. Likewise, Joshua was the human commander of the armies of Israel who led the people into the promised land. And so these two accounts provide a prophetic picture of Christ's two advents. Now, I thought that was a great insight, and it also fits well with the ongoing theme of the plagues of Exodus. Each of the plagues is designed to build upon the next and to lead to the ultimate redemption of Israel, And when they're redeemed, they'll go to Sinai to receive their instruction. And eventually, they will head for the land of promise. Now, we as Christians have been redeemed. We have also received our instruction in the pages of the Bible. Eventually, we're going to be brought into the land of promise. 
And until we get there, we should be learning all that we can about this precious book that he has given us. And so our text verse for today comes from Hebrews chapter 4. It's the 12th verse. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, what a true statement that is. Pharaoh has been given the word of God verbally several times. He's also seen the proofs of it realized in the plagues upon the land. And today, no word is going to be given to him in advance of the plague. But the plague will speak for itself, proving its divine source. But it will also become a source of hardening, not softening of Pharaoh's heart. I have to tell you, someone who can hear the word of the Lord, see it analyzed and reanalyzed and see something new come out of it every single day and still not have it change their heart is just asking for grief. I missed those prophetic pictures of Christ in Exodus and in Joshua, even though they are as evident as the nose on my face. But instead of hardening my heart, they make me want to believe the Lord even more. Pharaoh, on the other hand, like so many people in the world today, take just the opposite view. It's a view which can only lead to destruction. And before that time comes, I would hope that many would open their eyes and they would look to see the glory of the Lord revealed in this precious superior word. Maybe somebody will today. And so let's head to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought is, stretch out your rod, which is verse 16. <clears throat> verse 16 says, so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod. This is now the third time that Aaron is instructed by the Lord through Moses to stretch out his rod. The first was over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. When he did, the waters became blood. The next time was over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds. This caused frogs to come up out of the land. Now something new will come about. As we saw concerning the frogs, they were a logical and a natural outcropping of the waters having been turned to blood, and yet there was the miraculous involved in that as well. This is especially so because the record shows that the frogs came when Aaron stretched out his rod and they departed at the time that Pharaoh himself had designated when requested by Moses. And so even if the plagues were natural, there is still the supernatural involved. Only the Lord could so minutely direct the events such as these. The next plague very well could be a natural result of the multiplication and the death of the frogs as well. Verse 16 goes on, and strike the dust of the land. Instead of merely stretching out the rod over the waters, a forceful action is instructed. Strike the dust of the land. It is a demonstration of purpose and intent, and it signifies that this third plague will come not from the waters, but from the land. This then is to be an attack on the Egyptian god Set, who is the god of the desert, as well as another god of Egypt, which I'm going to mention in just a little while. It is then to be a lesson that Jehovah is not merely God over the waters, but he is also the God over the land. Among the ancients, there was often a misperception concerning the nature of God. He isn't just a mere God over one thing and not over another. He isn't just a God over one group of people, but he is over all people. And he isn't only a God over one location, but over all places. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. It was a common misperception which is highlighted throughout the entire Old Testament. 
In 1 Kings chapter 20, Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Syria, came against Israel in battle. He was sorely defeated, okay? And what did he do? He returned home to Syria. Upon his return and in preparation for another battle, his servants told him why they thought he was defeated the first time. Here's what they said in 1 Kings 20, verses 23 through 25. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. And you shall muster an army like the army you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. If you read the account, you'll see that the Syrians found out that they were once again incorrect. Rather, they suffered a second great defeat. Likewise, in 2 Kings chapter 20, after the exile of Israel from the land because of disobedience, the king of Assyria brought people into the land of Israel from other countries to settle there. However, when they were brought in, we read this account right here. It says, and it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the lion, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions against them, and indeed they are killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, <clears throat> Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. In the first account, there was the misperception that Jehovah was the God of the hills and not of the plains. In the second, there was the misperception that the Lord was only the Lord of the land of Israel. Misunderstanding God's nature can lead to all sorts of problems. However, no matter whether he misunderstood or whether he understood, he uses the matter to effect his purposes. One more exceptional case, such as these that I just read, comes from the book of Isaiah. It also comes from Chronicles and from the book of Ezra. Isaiah, writing long, long before the exile of Israel to Babylon, made a prophecy concerning their return. In one of the most profound prophecies in the entire Old Testament, he twice mentioned King Cyrus of Persia by name, years and years before the person was ever born. He even said that it would be Cyrus who would rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This is recorded in Isaiah chapter 44. It says, Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers? Who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited? To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In the next chapter, he continues with his words concerning Cyrus, and he ends with this thought. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. It's believed that Cyrus was informed of this prophecy, which bore his own name, and it was so moving to him that he agreed to its terms. 
thus fulfilling the prophecy about him because it was a prophecy about him. The words of fulfillment are so important in the Bible that they close out the book of two Chronicles and they are repeated at the beginning of the book of Ezra. Here's what they say. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who among you of all his people, who is among you of all of his people, May the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. Cyrus realized that Jehovah is the God of heaven. He rules not only over portions of the earth, such as the water, the hills, the land of Israel, or the Middle East, but he rules over all of the earth and the heavens too. And not only does he rule over them in time, but beyond time. He rules over the future as well as the present. The prophecy which named him showed him these things. Unlike Cyrus, a different approach is taken towards Pharaoh. Now think of this. God could have named Pharaoh in advance by the mouth of Abraham, couldn't he have? Many, many years earlier, he could have explained what this Pharaoh should do. But a different course is taken in Egypt because a different outcome is needed. Every detail of history is being carefully guided for a specific outcome. In the case of Pharaoh, it is to harden his heart so that the mighty deeds of the Lord might be magnified. And these deeds aren't just given to show us how the Lord worked in the past, but how he's going to work again in the future during the tribulation period. Verse 16 goes on, so that it may become lice throughout all of the land of Egypt. Now, as simple as these words seem, the one word which defines this plague is kinim. It's translated here as lice. It can't be identified Actually, they don't know what it is. It's used only six times in the entire Bible. Five of them are in these verses right here, and the sixth is in the 105th Psalm, which is speaking of these verses right here. And because of the word's difficult nature, it's viewed by scholars in a variety of ways. Some say lice, some say gnats, some say mosquitoes, some say ticks. Each view has good and interesting possibilities. But to determine which it would be good to look at the natural order of how the plagues occur. The river turned to blood and frogs became prolific. If the frogs died out in an immense quantity, then there would be a natural logical outcropping from that. Again, this does not deny the miraculous event of the nature. Rather, it follows the natural progression of what God has instilled in nature. At the same time, the fact that God designed nature means that he would know when the plagues would come about. His instruction to Moses and Aaron are given at the time when these things would occur. Thus, just as will be seen at the parting of the Red Sea, there is still a miraculous element to the plague itself. With the river having turned to blood, which in turn would lead to all sorts of unsanitary conditions, and that being followed with a plague of frogs, which would lead to even worse conditions, it is not unthinkable that such a plague would arise. The question is, which is most likely? Although there's strong evidence for it being mosquitoes, it's known that they breed in water, not on land. Therefore, although some very, very great scholars over the years have chosen this, I would shy away from it. Aaron was told to strike the dust of the earth, not the waters. Adam Clark gives a good argument for it being ticks, but he's a lone voice in that, and it doesn't seem like a natural outcropping of unsanitary conditions. Gnats, on the other hand, do result from that. 
and so they're a very good possibility. Unlike mosquitoes, their larvae are found on the land, particularly in moist soils, all right? After they mature, they begin to fly, and they've been noted to appear as clouds of dust as they fly. There are so many of them. Therefore, gnats are an acceptable possibility, but I do feel that there's one which is better. What seems most likely to me is that it is, in fact, lice, just as the New King James Version renders it. Lice are small, as if they were dust themselves. In fact, when you look at them on somebody's head, they almost appear like sand or dandruff on the scalp, at least until you see them moving around and making their little chewy-chewy motions. They're also very, very prolific. Adam Clark notes this about lice. In the space of 12 days, a full-grown female lays 100 eggs, from which in the space of six days, about 50 males and as many uh, females are produced. In 18 days, these young females are at their full growth each of which may lay 100 eggs, which will all be hatched in six days more. Thus, in the course of six weeks, the parent female may see 5,000 of its own descendants. So mightily does this scourge of indolence and filthiness increase. Therefore, not only does their size appear as dust, but their numbers can as well. A large plague of lice would appear as though the very dust itself had come to life. The 17th century Bible scholar, a guy named Samuel Bochart, gives several convincing reasons for the plague to have been just this, lice. Here's what he says. One, because those in question sprang from the dust of the earth and not from the waters. Okay, I've made that connection as well. Two, because they were on both men and cattle, which cannot be spoken of gnats. Three, because their name comes from the radix, kun, that's a Hebrew word, which signifies to make firm, fix, establish, which can never agree to gnats, flies, etc., which are ever-changing in their place and are almost constantly on the wing. And four, because kinna is the term by which the Talmudists express the louse. Okay, he's citing the Talmud, in other words, and he's saying that even the Jewish scholars agreed that this is probably lice, all right? His logic is certainly worthy of note, and it will seem to be borne out by the words of the coming two verses. Does God love me? This I want to know. Yes, he does. It's certain and true. But love is not all of who God is. There are things that he expects from me and you. There must be faith in him and what he has done in order for him to reward us with his love. He asks us to trust in the work of Jesus, his only begotten son, in order for us to walk with him in the heavens above. If we refuse to receive this and instead harden our heart, should we expect him to overlook such a thing? His word teaches us such lessons, wisdom it does impart, and in following its words, happiness it will bring. Our second thought today, lice on man and beast. Think of that. Oh, verse 17. Verse 17 begins with, and they did so. In obedience to the word of the Lord, and without any seeming hesitation or worry that the plague might not actually occur, they are noted as having followed through with the command. And unlike the previous two plagues, this one has occurred without any given warning. It can therefore be considered a direct judgment on Pharaoh for having hardened his heart after the plague of the frogs. As absolutely sure evidence that it was the Lord that directed the frogs, Pharaoh himself was given the honor of choosing the selected time of their demise. When it occurred, exactly as spoken, he should have humbled himself. But instead, when there was relief, he took the other path and further hardened his own heart. Thus, this plague is given without warning as a penalty for his arrogant, hard heart and for his failure to submit to the Lord as well. As was seen in an earlier sermon, I gave you some patterns that are in these plagues, 
The first nine plagues are divided into three distinct groups. Advanced warnings are given in the first two plagues of each specific group, but when the third plague comes, it is without any previous notice. That is the case with this plague, which is the third. It will also be the case with the sixth plague, which is boils, and the ninth plague, which is darkness. Verse 17 goes on. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. Again, it is noted that it is the dust of the earth which is struck. The specific details of this verse and the previous verse really seem to preclude the notion of mosquitoes. Further, we're told that after the plague of frogs, the frogs remained in the river. As this is so, there would have been plenty of natural predators to consume mosquito larvae. Although mosquitoes are considered at times horrendous along the Nile, they are waterborne insects, not landborne. Aaron is said to have struck the dust, and the result follows. Verse 17 going on, and it became lice on man and beast. As the Lord spoke, the plague occurs. Lice became so numerous that they literally covered man and beast. Having read numerous articles on lice for this particular sermon, it is evident that this is more than possible. There are various types of lice, and they are known to cover humans, clinging especially to any spot of hair on the body. They also will cover household pets and outdoor animals, such as horses and goats and whatever other livestock they can cling to. They can carry diseases, and they can be a painful nuisance for any who are infected with them. What probably happened is that millions of frogs ate whatever predators lice have, and they upset the life cycle, allowing them to bloom in great numbers. This plague would have been most unwelcome to the Egyptian people. It would have been most unwelcome because they prided themselves on cleanliness. There's an ancient writer named Herodotus. He even notes that priests were wont to shave or to scrape their whole bodies every third day lest any lice should breed upon them. And my thought was they probably got that custom from this plague right here. After that time, they probably came to the habit of you know, scraping themselves every third day for all of their generations after that. To have these crawling all over them would be absolutely miserable. But it's not unlikely because of the immense lack of hygiene which would have resulted from the death of the frogs. Also, it is the wording of this particular verse in the Hebrew which seems to indicate lice rather than gnats. It says, Ba'adam ube behema, in man and in beast. The description is more readily identified with lice than it is with gnats. Lice, as I said, they cling and they chewy-chew on people. Gnats instead will come and they'll go and they'll only stop and nibble. But regardless of which it truly is, they came in numbers that were beyond imagination and they covered both people and animals. Verse 17 goes on. All of the dust of the land became lice throughout all of the land of Egypt. The term kal afar haaretz, or all of the dust of the land, has to be taken as a form of hyperbole, Okay. This type of speech is more common than you'd think of in the Bible. Both Testaments, and in many, many varying contexts, use the term all to indicate a vast number, but not specifically meaning literally all. When John the Baptist came, okay, he baptized people for repentance. In the Gospel of Mark, we are told this, and it's noted in the hyperbolic form all. Here's what it says. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, and all were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Twice in one account it says all. 
first all of the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, and then all were baptized by him. If taken literally, then all of the people from those areas, meaning every single one of them, was baptized, right? But in Luke chapter 7, we read this. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees and the lawyers, though being inhabitants of Judea and Jerusalem, were not baptized. Therefore, we always need to be considerate and careful when we look at words like all and every. And we have to take them in their intended context. In the case of the ten plagues, it is not to be taken that literally all of the dust of the land became lice. Rather, it is the superlative way of noting the immensity of the plague. And there's a reason for this. The plague fell upon the earth, which itself was considered a deity. It was even considered the father of gods. They held sacred the black fertile soil of the basin of the Nile, which they called Kemi, from which the ancient name of Egypt is actually supposedly derived. Therefore, the Lord is exalting his name and his power above the false god Kemi of the created order, as well as Set, the god of the desert, who I mentioned earlier. The Egyptians had come to worship the ground under their feet instead of raising their eyes to the Lord. Now that ground would come alive with rage upon them for their spiritual harlotry. Again, as I've said, I personally believe that this plague is a natural outcropping of a logical sequence of events. It involves one plague leading to the next as nature unfolds in its normal way. And yet, there is still the note of the miraculous as well. Adam Clark, based on the writing of an earlier scholar named Calmet, also discerned this process. Here's what he said. It may be observed that God never works a miracle when the end can be accomplished by merely natural means. And in the operation of divine providence, we always find that the greatest number of effects possible are accomplished by the fewest causes. This is an important consideration because Pharaoh could perceive this plague as being natural rather than supernatural. And the same will be true with the end plagues of the end times in the tribulation period. Though they have been predicted in advance by the Lord, they will probably come about by natural or by man-made occurrences, like a nuclear bomb leads to radiation. You have this plague. You have chemicals. You may have a meteorite. All of these are natural things. And so the people will be duped into believing it's not the Lord who's behind them when he's told in the book that these plagues are coming. The miraculous is that God foresees the event and gives us advance notice of it, just as he did with Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus could have said, well, gee whiz, that's just four letters which could be speaking of anybody with a similar name as me. Instead, he heard the word and he believed the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Many like Pharaoh also hear, and they refuse to accept the truth which is presented to them. In the end, such will suffer both regret and unfortunately torment. Once the frogs, the dead frogs were gone and the stink faded away, we thought that things would again be pretty nice. But we sure thought wrong what we thought on that day. This is just disgusting. We're all covered in lice. We itch all over and our animals are all covered too. Our beds are inundated with them as well. I guess shaving man and beast is what we have to do. We'll all look pretty silly for a spell. But that sure is better than being covered with lice. It will be great when every one of them dies. We won't be itchy and life will be so nice. Ich, the only thing worse than lice would be a plague of flies. And guess what the next plague is, people? Our third thought today, the finger of God. 
verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. The same expression is used here as was used in Exodus 7, verse 22, and did so the magicians. It doesn't mean that they were actually able to do so, but that they tried to do so. Saying something in a definite manner can mean to attempt to do this thing as well as actually do it. In Matthew 7, verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate. Okay, but in Luke 13, 24, the same words are rendered as strive to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus uses the definite term in Matthew to indicate that an attempt should be made. In the case of the Egyptians, they did so, but they could not. What it means is that they did what Aaron did, but they didn't achieve the same results as he did. And this is also more clearly explains the all of the previous verse, which said all of the dust of the land became lice. If all of it had, then they would have had no dust to try the same miracle. It's beyond credibility to think that they couldn't perform the sign because there was no dust for them to try. If that were the case, then the Bible wouldn't have noted them trying, right? One scholar, though, went so far, get this, is to say that they made dust by first taking moist earth and they dried it out, and they pounded it until it was dust. Now, that's an immense amount of thought to insert into a verse, which is plain on its surface. The superlative all is used even though it doesn't literally mean all, okay? Verse 18 continues, so there were lice on man and beast. There's more than not being able to reproduce the miracle. There's also the reality of the lice which did come forth. They covered both man and beast, and the magicians had absolutely no control over them. They could no more get rid of them than they could produce them. The plague had begun, and it would run its natural course without their ability to bring it to an end. Verse 19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. With their inability to reproduce the miracle, they realized that they have been outmatched. In the past, they could reproduce the event that the Lord had originated, right? Even if it was on a smaller level, and even if they couldn't end what he had begun but now they can't even repeat the thing. The tricks up their sleeves have come to an end. They may have assumed at this point that Moses and Aaron were just exceptionally good magicians, but now they see that there is a difference in both magnitude and in accomplishment. And so they proclaim to Pharaoh, Etzba Elohim he. Translators universally translate this in your Bible as the finger of God. But because these priests are polytheists, it doesn't mean that they have yet accepted the premise of just one God. Rather, they could be claiming that Jehovah is just merely a God rather than the God. This word here, Elohim, provides both. It can be either plural or singular. This God, Jehovah, who they have come to know is not one of their gods, but to them he still may be just another of many gods. All they know at this point is that they, what they have seen has come from a force which is greater than what they can conjure up on their own. No matter what they're thinking, though, these priests, the use of the word finger is notable for a few reasons. So far, 2,500 years of human history have been recorded, and yes, I checked this because I looked at the word finger and I said, I don't think I've seen this yet in the Bible. It is. It's the very first time that the word finger is mentioned in the entire Bible. And even more, it's used in a metaphorical rather than a literal sense. To us, the idea of a finger is that it accomplishes something. It points to other things and it indicates the source of power. The finger leads to the hand, which is used for swearing. Swearing implies an oath and thus authority. It implies power, both to fend off and also to hold. 
The hand leads to the arm, which indicates strength, strength to destroy and strength to save. All of this and much more are seen in the Bible concerning these body parts. The priests here acknowledge that the source of what has occurred is from another realm, which is represented by the finger. This concept is going to be seen again in both testaments of the Bible, ascribing the sovereign and omnipotent power of God to the work of his fingers. In Psalm 8, we read this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And then in Luke 11, verses 19 and 20, we find these words of Jesus. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When the Ten Commandments were written, it was with the finger of God. And when the leaders of Israel were about to stone a woman for adultery in the New Testament, it was the finger of the Lord writing in the sand, which withheld their intent for her demise, right? The power of the finger is not to be underestimated, especially the finger of God. But for some, there is a lack of understanding the full implication of the work which is wrought by that awesome appendage of Jehovah. The finger of the Lord is attached to a very strong hand, and that in turn is attached to an outstretched arm, ready to work even greater miracles in the midst of Egypt. Pharaoh just doesn't realize it yet. As we see, as verse 19 continues, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. The words of his magicians do not reflect the certainty of one God. There is no definite article in front of the word God, and there is no other descriptor attached to him other than that the deed was by Elohim's finger. Pharaoh has already seen two supposed demonstrations of the ability to replicate God's miracles, right? Just because one attempt has failed is not enough to convince him that he is superior in all ways. Rather, for all Pharaoh knows, he may be inferior in other ways, and so he's willing to challenge this. For him, it has probably been a very uncomfortable plague, but not a plague of sufficient magnitude to cause him the loss of an entire group of people who are under his authority. The Lord has successfully worked in the life of Pharaoh in a way which has caused him to harden his heart to the things of God. And we know this is so because of the final words of today, which say, just as the Lord had said. Ka'asher deber Yehovah, as spoke the Lord. These words, along with the ones just before them, are an exact repeat of Exodus 7, verse 13, which said, But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. The heart of Pharaoh has been passively hardened by the Lord, not actively. This is what is implied here. He has shown his glory in small steps rather than in one great act. And because of this, Pharaoh has become more, not less obstinate in his attitude towards him. It is true that the Lord may have prompted Pharaoh to hardening, but the fault and the sentence for the action remain solely with him. The magicians have acknowledged the finger of God in the matter, whatever that meant to them. And so by rejecting what the plague has made plainly known, Pharaoh has now placed himself on the same level of this Elohim. Whether it's a God or the God, he's placed himself on that level. This is what the Antichrist is going to do in the future as he leads the world to inevitable destruction. And this is what many individuals do willingly every single day of their lives. God has made himself known to his creature through his creation. But we suppress that truth in the unrighteousness of our minds. Pharaoh only added his 
guilt in this matter because he not only rejected the natural evidence, but he has rejected three instances of supernatural evidence. And maybe there's someone like Pharaoh here today. We've been given not only the natural truths of God in the timing of the stars and in the intricacy of DNA, but we have been given the supernatural truths of God as well. We have the evident truths of revealed prophecy. Some of them have come true in our own lifetime. We have the Jew who beyond all possibility has survived and has flourished, just as the Bible said that they would. We have the evidence of God revealed in changed lives and restored families. And even more, we have his sure word. In every reasonable evidence for there being a God, there is only an unreasonable response by the unbeliever that there is no God. Let's not be like Pharaoh in this regard. Instead, let us soften our hearts and simply acknowledge his greatness. Let us welcomingly receive the knowledge that he imparts to us. And let us bow our knee and receive the greatest gift of all, the salvation of our souls through the work of his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never understood the need for Jesus in your life, just give me another moment because I know there could be somebody watching today that just is curious about the plagues of Egypt, but they haven't met the Lord of creation. He demonstrates himself in all of the ways I've just spoken about and in so many others. There are people in here that have been out on the mission walk with me. I said that he's shown himself through changed lives. We see it every weekend down there. You're not going to get that through Alcoholics Anonymous. You're not going to get that through spiritual enlightenment from, from Buddha. It's only going to come through the power of Jesus Christ taking away that sickness or that addiction that they possess. The Bible says that we have sin in our lives, and that sin causes all of these other things to occur, and it causes a barrier between us and God. And then we turn around and we make our hearts hard to God and God just lets us go our own way and it causes us more grief and more sorrows. I got an email this morning from somebody. I don't want to give any more details than that because then you're going to know who it is. But this person has been suffering a lot lately. And they came to a point where they were going to do something detrimental to themselves yesterday. And they said, I need to email Charlie. And they did. And so now we're going to work this out together. But it's because they haven't been following the Lord. And they admitted that in their own email. Like I say, I can't say any more than that, but I can tell you that people understand that there is this need in their lives. And if you have that need in your life, don't do something foolish, don't do something rash, and don't put yourself into a bottle. Instead, call out to Jesus Christ. He will take away the sin debt that we owe, and he'll give us a new peace and a new reassurance that only he can give, because he has now restored us to our God once again through his shed blood, and the proof of it is his resurrection. So please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ, if you've come to the end of your rope, just do it. And you're going to find out that you have made the right decision. And then don't slip away. Don't get backslidden like this person that emailed me. Instead, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will keep you always. Man, if there's any proof of that on the face of this planet, it's sitting in this chair right here. I assure you of that. And he can do the same in your life. Okay? Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 1. Most of you know this by heart. That's the 18th and 19th verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Think of Pharaoh. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. Doesn't that fit Pharaoh perfectly? Are we Pharaoh here today? Don't suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. Call out to Jesus and let him change you from the inside out. Next week is Exodus 8. It's verses 20 through 32, the plague of flies. That'll be our 24th Exodus sermon. And because Pharaoh denies, uh-oh, 
here comes the plague of flies, right? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, before I give our poem today, I want to let everybody know that Kelly brought Nom Noms today. So please come back and have something before we leave and we'll also take communion here. But I want to make sure that you all know this. And uh, here's our uh, poem. It's called Not So Nice, It's a Plague of Lice. So the Lord said to Moses, as he had spoken before, spoken twice, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt, wherever people trod. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast throughout the land. Surely anguish cries replaced any sounds of mirth. All the dust of the land became lice. Throughout all the land of Egypt, things had turned not so nice. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there was lice on man and beast in all of Egypt, yes, in every spot. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, not just a trick instead. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, as we know, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. The plagues of Egypt were severe upon the land, but worse things are coming upon the earth. From the Bible, someday we understand that the world will be plunged into horrible dearth. There will be plagues and famines too. War and death will be found everywhere. But to escape this terrifying time, I'll tell you what to do. Call on Jesus to save you, and he will right then and there. His coming judgment is because of a world gone astray. We ignore him like tuning a radio, like a radio tuning him out. And things cannot forever go on this way. Instead of faith and trust, there is only uncaring and doubt. People, let us turn our hearts back to the Lord. Let us give him the rightful glory that he is due. He has shown us what is proper in his word. And he has even sent Jesus to save me and you. Let us hold fast to him, cherishing him all of our days. And let us never fail to give him all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for these lessons and uh, the uh, confirmation of them interspersed all the way throughout the Bible, that you're not just a God of the hills and not just a God of the plains or just the God of Israel, but you are the God of all people, always. And I would ask that you would just tenderly look into our hearts and mold them for your good purposes and help us to proclaim your word every single day to somebody to get out there and let people know that there is hope and that there is comfort to be found in Jesus Christ and there is release from all of the sting of sin that we carry with us. Thank you for these lessons about the hardening heart so that we can look at them and we can say, I don't want that to happen to me. Instead, I want to remain soft to you, Lord. All of these things and so many more are so tenderly placed in your word because you love us enough to give us warnings in advance. What a great God you are to do that. What we deserve, we do not get. And what we don't deserve, you just lavish upon us. You're so gracious and so wonderful. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. My daily devotion was about the Lord's table, among other things. And uh, I was just sitting there reading it and thinking, what an honor it is to take this, this Lord's table every week. What an honor. And yet I was sitting there thinking, you know, I remember being in churches where you might have it once every four or five months. I've been in churches where they never served it. Or they'd have a potluck and they'd say, this is the Lord's Supper. And I, yeah. And so I I have to tell you that I'm so thankful that 
you know, the Lord has put it in the hearts of the people that do come here mm -hmm. to say, this is something that I'm going to participate in each week because this is what the Bible actually asks us to do. And it, it just, I was so edified reading that this morning because I don't know why, it just really touched me. So anyway, here we are, and we're about to take the Lord's Supper. And um, we do get the instructions directly from the Bible. It's because it's something that the Lord asks us to do. He said it specifically on the night before he was crucified. And then through the, probably through Luke, he was, Paul was told this, and then Paul wrote his words, or they may have talked about it together, and Paul may have gotten some specific uh, directions from the Lord. But either way, it comes about from the hand of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there it says these words. Sorry about that. So make sure I take that off and uh, put this on. It says, uh, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Oh, Lord, this world just gets worse by the day. It really does. And we have, thankfully, a refuge of hope in you. This building may be destroyed someday. Christians may be persecuted to almost the last one of us. But there will be faithful people, even to the end, which will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For what you did on Calvary's cross and what we remember right here in this bread and this cup, we thank you and we praise you until you do come again. May you find faith still on this earth when you come. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.